0: Good morning, church. All right, our passage for today is from Haggai chapter 2, uh, from verse 10 to the end. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, help me to preach faithfully, help us to listen faithfully, and please reveal to us, Father, your words to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we continue today into our third sermon on Haggai this week. In the first week, we saw how the people have turned away from God in their hearts and were more concerned in building up their own house instead of God's house. God, through Haggai, then called them to repentance and showed them the reason why they have not been prospering. It was because God was teaching them a lesson. So they repented, they responded by coming back and building the temple. Second sermon, we saw people who as they were challenged to persevere in completing this building of the temple, despite how the temple was nowhere near as impressive as it was during the time of Solomon, they were reminded that their hope is not in the building of the temple but in their relationship with God. And so today we come to the final section of Haggai and we will see what message God brings to his people. Now, our passage today begins in verse 10, and we see that on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of the reign of King Darius, Haggai brought the word of God to his people. Now, it's been two months since Haggai's second sermon, and this message is coming to them in September. Now, we miss out on this context because uh, we don't follow a farming calendar, but now is the time for sowing late season crops or winter crops. So this will be the final round at trying to get a harvest before winter sets in and food becomes scarce. Normally by this time, the farmers would have kept a stockpile of seed for planting after winter, and the granary will be partially full at least. Haggai hints that the seed for the winter crop have been planted in verse 19. We ask this question, is the seed yet in the barn? There is also a hint that the granary is not full and there is no stock of seed to plant after winter because in verse 19 he says the wine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Which means there are no seeds in the barn for the next planting. So they seem to be in a situation where if this final round of planting fails, they're going to be in trouble. When planting winter season crops in Israel, there's a dependency on rain coming in during October and November to soften the ground, to provide the necessary moisture, and without that, the harvest will fail. Now, agriculture in Israel has always been hard because it was a land that primarily relied on the wind to bring rain. They don't have much access to irrigation, so they had to rely on rain. And so without rain, agriculture will fail. So in that sense, to live in Israel is to rely absolutely on this wind from God to bring down rain to sustain them. Or more poetically, since the Hebrew word for wind can also mean spirit or breath, you can say in a sense there are people who metaphorically rely on the very breath from God. That brings them life. And perhaps God placed them there intentionally so that they will have to learn to rely on him. And this is exactly the lesson that the people have been learning in Haggai so far, right? So imagine the situation of the people then. They have heard the rebuke in Haggai chapter 1. They have trusted in God, turned to him in repentance. They continue building the temple in response. Yet the temple that they erected was far from magnificent, even to the point that those who remember the former glory looked at the temple and they weeped as they saw this new structure. Now, as they plant their winter crop, their last hope, there would be a great fear. What if what we have done is too late, too little? What if God is still angry and our crops fail? Imagine also the situation. These were not Israel in their glory. They were the remnants of Israel. Their ancestors have been rejected, condemned by God to destruction. This city that they're staying in lies in rubble. This temple that they finally come to build is nothing. It pales in comparison to what the temple used to be. So taking all these things in, you must see that this would be a period of great uncertainty for them. Not just uncertainty, if God will give rain and an abundant harvest, but also uncertainty if God has even accepted their repentance. If God will treat them the same as King David's people during the time when Israel had its best relationship with God. Now, their livelihood, perhaps even their very lives, are at stake. So now, they have done what they can. And they have to wait patiently to see if God will send the rain. Would God bless them? Or would they, as a people now, have another failure just before winter comes? And from there, starve, maybe even die. Will God work out the fullness of his anger towards him? He has come to them in anger. So it is in this context that this message that we're looking at today comes through Haggai. Now interestingly, this message from Haggai comes as two questions and is to be asked to the priests. And here, the priests are not asked for their personal opinion or views. They were asked in verse 11 on what the law, the Torah has to say about these questions. So this therefore puts the priests in a position where they are now explaining to the people the point that God is trying to make through the application of the law. And there's something behind why God is asking this question to the priests, but we'll come to that later. Let's look at the questions themselves first. The first question asked of the priest was regarding the capacity of something holy to transmit that holiness through touch. And the answer is, of course, according to the law, it cannot do that. Holiness is not a communicable attribute. Holiness cannot be spread in that way. If it is, very simple for us. So having established this then, the second question is asked, can something unclean make other things that it touches unclean? And here the priest answers, according to the law, yes, it makes other things unclean. And so we learn, unlike holiness, uncleanness is something communicable it doesn't just stay with you it affects others it affects your community then Haggai makes the point in the same way this is what has happened to these people they have been unclean and that uncleanness has tainted everything that they have been doing. Their uncleanness has tainted all the works of their hands. So what's the point of telling them this? First we need to ask, right, what uncleanness is being referred to here? We see in Haggai chapter 1, the people were negligent towards God, not caring about his presence, more interested in building their own Israel, independent from God, not under God. In fact, if we look at Zechariah chapter 1, which runs parallel to these events happening in Haggai, we see that it's just one month before the message from Haggai, Zechariah chapter 1. God spoke through Zechariah and he called the people to return to God. So this shows us, right, that rather than something external that caused the uncleanness, The people have become unclean because in their own hearts, they have not cared for God. And we also see this in Haggai chapter 1, when God rebukes their hearts. They did not care for God's house. They are more concerned for their own house. So we see the source of uncleanness is not through their actions, but through their heart. So imagine, right, in the book of Ezra, we see the people setting the foundation of the temple, then things happens and they are stopped from proceeding to build the temple. Do you know for how long? 18 years until Haggai 1, where they were called to action. What do you think happened during these 18 years in terms of worship of God? They were actually offering sacrifices at the altar at the foundation of the temple. They were celebrating their feast days. They were doing their religious observances just without the temple. Yet we see here from the questions that God has asked the priests, the implication here is that while they have been doing all this stuff, the priests have been over them, they've been doing all this stuff, they've been offering sacrifices, celebrating the Jewish feast days, they've been doing their religious observances, they were doing it out of religious obligation, out of tradition. So because their heart was not really for God, which was seen by the fact they actually didn't care to finish the temple. Ah, got altar, chinchala, just do that. Lah. And what they prioritized was working on their own comfort. Because of this, all the works of their hands have become unclean. And that uncleanness tainted all the work that they've been doing. The entire community then have been dwelling in uncleanness. And as an entire people, Whatever they have done in that past 18 years did not please God. In neglecting to build the temple, the people were revealing their contempt for the true worship of God because the mindset is jinchai. And all the things they have been doing was not pleasing. Of course God is not going to accept that. We see that similar idea in the New Testament as well, right? Romans tells us, all the works that comes from a heart of sin are as filthy rags before God. There is no way God is going to accept our works if it comes from a heart that does not love Him. Ultimately, what God is seeking is not for people to do things, but for people to be in a right relationship with God. That will lead you to do things but that's not what God's initial interest is in. Think about the first sermon on Haggai, where we talked through what building up the house of God looks like in our context, right? So we had the sermon, and we were reminded it involves serving, building up each other, and that's a great thing, right? But have you realised, at the same time, we can fall into this trap of doing these very same things as an obligation, as a part of church culture, And suddenly we can be found doing things that are good but they are tainted by our sinfulness of not depending on God or not desiring for God's glory or not caring about our response to God. We will end up doing these things for our achievement, for our pride, for people to recognize us. And that's not too far-fetched, right? How often do we find ourselves doing things because of peer pressure? Because the pastor keep on asking. We do it to ingratiate ourselves to others in the church. You do stuff up front so people will know you. You can make friends. Or simply because we just think, I have to do this, law, I come to church already. Now, Andrew was very clear in that sermon that we build God's house out of a love for God, desiring his glory and his purpose to be done. But we can take that message he preached and just hear, you better go and do things, huh? Right? Some of you maybe had, uh, and we are very good at this, at having knee-jerk reaction to sermons. We feel guilty for not doing these things, and then we simply do them because we feel bad if we don't. Now, don't get me wrong, eh? we do want to be doing these things. They are good things. God wants us to do these things, but what today's passage teaches us, what's unique about Haggai 2, is that it teaches us that we want to make sure that we are really doing these things with the right heart. And our desires are for God, for the things that God wants. Because we love him, because we recognize that we belong to him. So how does it apply to us? There will be people who volunteer less, who do less work because of their circumstances. But they really love God. And there will be those who do many things, do here, do here, do here, every week or so you see them up front, actually they don't really love God. Instead, what they love is how they're perceived by the community. It makes them feel good. So, think about the things that you do to build up God's house and ask yourself, why are you doing these things? Is it for God or is it for the wrong reasons? And if you are someone who maybe after hearing the first sermon, you feel burdened because you do love God, But your circumstances makes it hard for you to commit to more things. You're tired. See that what God desires more than your action is your heart towards Him. So work on the heart more than the action. Though as a side note, if you are finding your actions that that, that is good and godly to be hard, you do have to consider life that is coming from a heart issue or really. Is it your circumstances? Right? So if it's not a problem with your heart, if it's genuine, then actually you have comfort, isn't it? You don't need to feel that you are less Christian than the other person who's serving in more things than you do. So to come to understand then that the calling of God in Haggai chapter 1 for them to come and build up the temple was not so much about building up the building of the temple for unlike men god did not need buildings to reside in it's not about the building itself but rather it was actually about calling their hearts back to god to stop them from their useless works that were stained by the uncleanness of their hearts if god didn't call them they would have just continued offering the sacrifices and it was useless God has never delighted in the external ceremonies. And this lesson is now being taught to these people, lest they think, okay, now that we start building up the temple, surely God's going to be pleased with us. And then they go back to the same mindset, to the same way of living. And worshipping God, but in a false way, not really desiring Him. And this is the point of why God comes back to the same point He's made in chapter 1. Is for them to see the true problem and learn to avoid that. We will see later that God does intend to bless them. But God wants them to relate to him in the right way this time. So this is why the message to Haggai reveals the problem of the heart of the people. But why involve the priests? Couldn't Haggai have just stated this thing directly? He could have, right? By asking the priests this question, having them answer from the law, God is reminding them of their complicitness in how the people have turned away from God. The role of the priest is not only ceremonial in things like offering sacrifice, leading people to celebrate feast days. They would to be people who brought the word of the law to the people, to teach them, to guide them so that they will not stray from God. The fact that the people have strayed from God in this community shows us that actually they have not been able to do this aspect of their responsibility as priests to their nation. And we see in Ezra, after the temple was finished, Ezra realizes the problem, and he takes up the ministry of preaching, of teaching. And then the elders also begin to teach the people. And we see this movement from the mindset of the priests, seeing themselves as ceremonial officials, for them to also see the need to come and teach the people that the word is important for them. The priests are to remember that they they are more than merely guardians for ceremony, liturgy, and tradition. there are also to be those who mediate the hearts of the people to come back to God. And if they understand this rightly, then they will realize liturgy, ceremony, traditions are good when it points people to the right understanding of their relationship with God. Here then is the seed of how that evolution of that mindset begins through the prodding of God in the heart of the priest, through this rebuke. We will see in the book of Ezra then, a renewed vigor after this for the preaching and teaching of God's word with the aim of leading people back to God. And see, this is how God works through his word, to lead his people back to him. And the priests are to remember this. For us today, we are a nation of priests. So the responsibility does not rest solely on Andrew or Tim, but each of us have this responsibility to call others, to encourage others, to build us up so that each and every one of us love God rightly. Because uncleanness, it spreads from people to people. So keep on calling people. But we can also see, besides all of us, those who teach, those who preach, they do have a greater burden to help God's people when they go astray. And that's why teaching God's word is important. And that's why we will encourage you to come to do that well if you have that gift of teaching. So for those of you who are GG leaders, who are UCF leaders, who are doing one-to-one teaching new Christians, or doing just for starters, do see you have this responsibility to your brothers and sisters. Call them back if they turn away. Your role is not about getting them to do stuff in church. Your role is to get them to love God. And through that, God will use that to serve the church. So prepare well, sacrifice well, so that you can fulfill this responsibility for God's glory. Next, as we look at verse 15 to 17, we see that God's, judgment is mentioned and this is something that was covered earlier in Haggai chapter 1 right God reminds them of their fortunes before they were impacted and then after they continued the work of building up the temple so he reminds them of what he had done in withholding the fruits of the harvest and their hard works and this therefore will answer their concerns right in case they thought God are a bit petty in punishing us uh, just because I didn't build his temple It wasn't that. God punished them because all the works they offered for the past 18 years were tainted by their sin, not acceptable to him. So if they understand that, they will see God was not harsh in doing what he did. This was God's intervention to stop them from going in the same direction that led to the exile of the people in the first place. They were headed towards disaster. God was not being bad to them. He was not being cruel to them. He was not like a tyrant, like, oh, you never serve me, come and do. No. God was showing them in the same way a father will show his children when they stray from the path. So as we celebrate Father's Day, you can see how God is actually the true and ultimate picture of what a good father is. So this judgment that comes from God is not because he kecik hati, right? But it's his discipline because he loved them. Because he has chosen this remnant to be his. So we see God's grace in his judgment of his people, which leads them back to him. Now the big question then would be, is God saying that they are still unclean and all their work, include, including the work of Haggai 1 and 2, of continuing the work of building the temple, is also unclean and unacceptable? Because if that was the case, they are truly hopeless. Because they're sitting right now, helpless, winters approaching, no more seed in the storehouse. What would they do if this is what God is telling them? However, we see in verse 19, That God promises them, but from this day on, I will bless you. In fact, the reason that God has pointed out how he has judged them earlier is so that God can contrast that situation with their situation now. Notice verse 15 begins with, Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? And this is now contrasted by verse 18. Consider from this day onwards. The contrast then comes to a head in verse 19. In the past, the wine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree did not yield anything. And now, as they desperately wait for their winter hours with empty storehouses, God comes and promises them that he will bless them. And God is telling them, as they have returned to him, He returns to them. And we can see the reason for this in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 6, where if you flip there and check later, you will see that the people confess that they repent and come back to God. This message from Zechariah came just one month before the message from Haggai here that we're reading. And it clearly shows the people have heard the accusation from God, but they have repented, they have come back to God. So now God is talking to his people who have repented and God is saying, look to the past and how I dealt with you now that you have come to me. Look and see how I will bless you. And God is therefore coming in their hour of need, giving them assurance, I will be with you because you have come back to me. God is saying that their trust in God is never misplaced. Your trust in God is never misplaced. So if we understand this passage, we will see that the purpose of this then, all this questioning and all, is to give them encouragement, to call them to greater faith in God now that their hearts are beginning the process of returning to God. Now while we don't see what happens to their winter harvest, obviously they all didn't die because we still have other books to read after this, right? Do we have any doubt that God would have dealt with them bountifully after speaking these words of assurance to them? Of course he would have. But will the zeal of the people last? If you continue reading on, what happens after the temple is completed and what the book of Malachi reveals, actually you see they still mess up. Lah. And the heart of it is the problem that they have. While holiness is not communicable, their uncleanness affects all their works, makes it unworthy of God. And as long as this problem remains, this problem of uncleanness, they will always return back to sin. And sin will lead to a distancing from God, and their offering and works will be rejected again, and they will be cursed. And this is a cycle that's going to repeat itself again and again. And this cycle is what we see in the Old Testament. That's why we have this pattern in the book of Judges. People fall to sin, repent, come back. When the judge comes, and then after the judge dies or goes away, fall back into sin. This is a huge problem for God's people until we look to Jesus in the New Testament. Here in Haggai, we see the problem for the people, right? Is that no real escape from the cycle of sin, which makes their work unacceptable. But we see from the New Testament that when Jesus came, he dealt with uncleanness. He transmitted holiness. He made people clean. So for believers today, we don't need to worry about becoming unclean and our works being rejected by God because in Christ, we are made holy. Christ stands before the throne of God, interceding on our behalf. And all our sins and uncleanness is washed away when we turn to him. Because we are in Christ, our works are no longer considered filthy rags before God. In fact, more than that, Christ has also sent the Holy Spirit to continually work in us to bring us out of that cycle of hardness of heart which leads to sin against God. Because of Christ, this entire dynamic that has haunted mankind's relationship with God becomes overturned. So as you look at the failures of the past, and you come to realize how amazing what Christ has done, right? Well, then we move on. Verse 20 to 23, uh, 22. And here we see God speaking once again of this shaking of the heavens and earth. And we have covered this last week, so we're not going to deal with it in detail. We know from last week that this is a picture of the eschatological judgment or end-time judgment when God will come, uphold his kingdom, bring in all the treasures of the earth under him. Reading the book of Revelation will give a picture of this where we see God standing in judgment, giving all things to Christ and establishing his church over all things. But why is God bringing this up again? He already said last chapter, right? In the context of the progression of this text, there's actually an additional meaning here. By contrasting how God deals with the unfaithfulness of his people, which He just talked about earlier, and now showing how God deals with the world, we see that there is truly a humongous amount of grace towards his people. The Israelites are not actually better than the nations of the world. The only reason that they are able to turn back and repent is because God came to them. God worked through his word, his prophet, and called them back. If it was not for that, they too will be swept away in the shaking of the earth and the heaven. So in God declaring these things here again, God is actually showing the exiles. His heart for them is still the same heart that God had for Israel when David was king. This God is going to deal with them with grace and love, forgiving their iniquities, calling them back to him again and again. As the people see the terribleness of this judgment, brother killing brother, they should look at how God has dealt with them and come to him with thanksgiving, with renewed trust. These return exiles, Rebuilding in the ruins of the past glory. Building a temple that's less impressive. These exiles are still every bit still loved by God. Every bit still God's people. And he acts graciously towards them. And they are still in every way God's chosen and beloved people. Not because they are great in any way. But because God has inclined his hearts towards them. Because God has chosen them. So finally then, we see this pronouncement of God in verse 23. He will make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. Now a signet ring is a ring that bears this seal or imprint that is used to authorize the action taken by someone. So if you watch Chinese drama, it's like the emperor's Chopla. Right? So having this seal means you have the full authority of God that God has invested that authority in this person. Now, if the shaking of heaven and earth happens in the end time, wouldn't Zerubbabel be the wrong person to single out to become God's representative? Imagine Christ coming down in all authority and suddenly Zerubbabel leaps up. Hey bro, sorry, this is mine. Huh? Ridiculous, right? So how do you understand this? Well, if we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we will see that Zerubbabel is an ancestor of Jesus. So we should understand that right, this is how Hebrew blessings work. When Abraham was promised that through him will come a blessing to the nation, it's not literally to him lah, right? End times not Abraham going to come, let me save the nations, it's through his seed, Jesus. In the same way, when David was promised that his kingship will endure forever, it's not him who reigns as king forever. It's his descendant, Jesus Christ, the ultimate Davidic king. So in this sense, while there's a blessing on these people, the fullness of the promise is seen in the ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ. So too with Zerubbabel. Jesus Christ comes as the fullness of this promise when he comes on that day of judgment. With all authority and power, seated on God's throne, judging over all the nation, and ruling once and for all the kingdom that God has fully established after that, as he is the true seal, representation of God. But for the people at this time, there is a great meaning in this thing being proclaimed, even though they're not going to see that. Before the exile, God cursed Jeconiah the last Davidic king in Jeremiah 23. God cursed that his descendant shall never prosper nor sit on the throne of David. Right, this was the last king before Israel fell to Babylon. Right? Then the king fell. Right? The temple was destroyed. And with that, the nation was destroyed. Buildings all brought to rubble. People brought into exile. It's the end of an era. Right, It ends with that curse. Yet now, we see the reversal, isn't it? The people are brought out from exile. The nation is reinstated the ruined temple being built up again. And as all this happened, God reverses the curse and places a Davidic king over them again. Now, Zerubbabel ruled as a governor, but that's just splitting hair, right? So in seeing Zerubbabel officially given God's approval into this position of kingship, This shows the people God's heart has really returned to his people. It gives them comfort knowing that God is restoring his Israel once again. The people now know the messianic promise that they've held on since the time of Abraham is still intact and not lost because of their disobedience. Not the disobedience that led to the exile, not the disobedience that they have repented from in Haggai. So as the people waited for the harvest, which surely God is going to grant them, they will have confidence then in knowing that even this promise now towards Zerubbabel shows them they can now continue to hope in the coming Messiah, something greater than this harvest. Israel has once again been restored to hope, and that hope is in God's true servant, who is the Messiah. This then is the point of this passage. To give hope to the faltering, to assure that God's promises still applies to them and God's hope for them in the coming Messiah has not been taken away. God has chosen his servant Zerubbabel and through that, God shows that he has chosen his people, Israel. They have hope now. So to sum up the applications that we actually talked about earlier, firstly, we see God values the heart and the response more than work. There's no point in empty work if our heart is not for God. Secondly, those who preach and teach have an extra burden. They have to deal with the word of God faithfully and use that to point God's people to help them repent, turn away from the sin, to call them back to him. Thirdly, even as we fail in loving God rightly, through Jesus, we can come back. Our sins do not stop us because Jesus has made us clean. We are not under that same cycle of sin and destruction and hopelessness that Israel was under. And finally, we see that God will judge all things and his purpose for the world will come to pass. All things will be shaken and only his kingdom his house will remain. So, if that's the case, don't look too eagerly at the world. Don't be so hard up I want to belong there. Seek instead to be firmly rooted in God's kingdom because that's the one that's going to last. Because God has declared that the messianic promises are still the hope of the people, we continue holding on to the hope In Jesus, who is our Messiah. Jesus who has been revealed to us. And all we need to wait for, unlike them, we're just waiting for the day of glory when he comes. You already know who he is. It's not too difficult, right? But it's so hard to do. So as we see how gracious God is towards his people, bringing them back to him, through his words, through his prophets, as we see how faithful a God we have in caring for the needs of his people. As we see how he has chosen his people, that he exalts them. They are special to him. Should all of this not lead us to love this God back, to desire his presence in our life, to rethink why we are serving for his glory, for his honour, and to repent and turn away from all these things that are distancing us from Him. Won't you give it up? Knowing what a wonderful God we have. So let us be thinking about how we respond to Him in the things that we do and seek out within the depths of our heart. Make sure that we really, really serve Him because we desire to worship Him. Because we desire to come to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us, Lord, to see you for who you are. Gracious God who has chosen us, who has promised us of the hope we have in the Messiah, even as the time of shaking comes to earth and heaven. And so, Father, help us to hold firm. Help us to see that we can trust in you. And help us to be careful of the uncleanness that makes our works unacceptable to you. And lead us back to Jesus each and every time to confess, to repent, and serve you with a fresh heart. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.